Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from HR Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. I kind of feel like you got a head start on this one because you had an hour and a half conversation with our guest yeah. a week or two ago, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Just, you just me, about like, I just got off the phone for an hour and a half and he's going to come on our podcast. And I'm like, what's left to talk about? <laughs> so I, you're going you're gonna to have to lead this conversation because you, uh, I feel like you know what to ask now. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was a terrific – well, before we continue, we're speaking to Don Denman of, of the Stamp Smarter website. I'm sure more and, people know StampSmarter.com than perhaps know him by name, but I think that's yeah. a testament to his, to his work he's done online. Yeah, absolutely. I invited him on because it was a terrific conversation you the first You were really time. excited. Uh, yeah, once, I mean, once you got off the phone, you called me up and you were like, we got to have this guy on. So I'm really looking forward to this one. I also want to mention Don uh, was the recipient of the uh, of the Kerr Award from the APS. Is that correct? Yeah, 2019, he got the, uh, was the recipient of the Kerr Award. Yeah. Kerr is one of my favorite philatelic uh, authors to read when I go mm-hmm. back through journals of the 60s and 70s. and mm-hmm. every, So anybody who receives his award is uh, automatically yeah. okay for, in my book. So For those who don't no, the recipient of the Kerr Award is someone who's making a philately attractive as a hobby to newcomers, working directly with newcomers, especially young people, or developing and administering programs aimed at recruiting uh, new members to the hobby. So that's well, exactly what the Stamp Smarter website. I was going to say his website's definitely doing that. Let's uh, let's bring yeah. him in. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Here we go. Hey guys. Hi. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time out to join us. Oh well, thanks for having me. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, how have you been holding up? Oh, doing, doing great. That's good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So, uh, to to kick things off, do you mind just talking a little bit about um, your your philatelic history? What what got you started in the hobby? Sure. Uh, I got interested in stamps uh, when I was a young fellow back in the seventies. Uh, joined my local stamp club and uh, became a vice president of my local stamp club. And then, of course, as I uh, got out of high school and uh, went on to university and started a career like a lot of folks, uh, it got put aside. Um, it wasn't until, oh, probably in the, in the 90s that I uh, re-engaged with the hobby and uh, and it, and it's been... Uh, fully engaged since then. Can you talk a little bit about your your um your your technological background? Because so much of what you've done is is sort of um uh you know connecting this this very analog, very tactile hobby to the um uh, to the to the modern world. So so wh- wh- where does that uh, angle of of your interest come into it? Well, um, I've always uh, enjoyed machinery, and <laughs> when I when I got out of uh, school, I. Uh, after uh, helping with the family business um, in the 80s, I compute. I got into computers at that point and computerized our inventory and got involved with databases at that time. Um, I eventually have self-taught uh, myself how to write software and code and then got a job at a technology company um, as, as a software engineer. I worked my way up through the through the ranks there, and eventually became uh, vice president of engineering at the technology company, and uh, was uh, was always interested in information technology, both as a hobby and and as a career. Great. So, at what point did you decide to merge your two hobbies, if you will, and create the the Stamp Smarter website? Well, I was uh, rolling along in my career till um, till about seven years ago, and then uh, ended up being diagnosed with uh, cancer. So I had to uh, I had to take a, a leave my career and um, started looking for having some more time at home and and battling you know that medical challenge. I didn't want the prognosis was pretty grim um, right from the get go. So I didn't want to burden my family by continuing, continuing to grow um, the m- amount of material that I had in case they, my, my family had to disposition it. 
So I was looking for ways to combine both the technology and the hobby and thought, well, this, this would be a, a fantastic way to stay engaged with the hobby, give me some something, a distraction from the medical issues that were going on, and also to give back to the hobby that has, that has given so much to me over the years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been a consistent progress over the past seven years, really. When you started this out, did you was it a completely solo uh mission for yourself you wanted to create this or did you work with anyone to build the information on there i was uh, good friends with bill weiss the late bill weiss Mm -hmm. and uh bill bill had uh he and i had discussed many times the issue of some of the um misinformation um particularly on some of the online auctions like ebay and and listings and you know we we discussed ways that that we may be able to uh, fight that battle. Um, and we, we really came to the conclusion that the only weapon in that war is education. And, and so we set out and, and with his encouragement, um, began to, I, I developed a website and began to uh, you know, work towards uh, helping uh, collectors make better informed buying decisions. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Michael, you go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I was going to mention Bill later in the later because I noticed that a lot of the topics, kind of on the on the library that you have for under U.S. stamps, he had written a number of articles on how to detect fakes and and how to how to figure out if your coil is is a is a fake or altered coil or created coil. So so he wrote a lot of that information specifically for your website from his expertise? Uh, I believe he had a lot of that that content already developed and offered it to the website. Simultaneously, uh, Bill Allen had uh, his original website, the 1847 USA website, had gone dark. And so um, that had a tremendous amount of really good content uh, for U.S. stamps. And uh, we started talking with uh, Bob and and asked him about that, and, and he offered that content up if if we would like to republish it. So uh, I inherited a lot of that content from, from Bob Allen also, and that got me more interested in uh, preserving, you know, a lot of websites have come and gone in the last 25 or 30 years, and yeah. some really good content has been lost. Um, you know, you can use some of the the archival sites on online and to retrieve some of it, but it's, uh, but, you know, I really started digging into what can we do to preserve the digital content that's online and, and stop this from, you know, passing into the ether. If, if a site was, uh, when sites go dark like that, um, I talked to some folks at the APRL and whatnot, and uh, asked, started inquiring about digital contributions, you know, if someone spends 2,000 man hours writing a book, uh, someone who spends 2,000 man hours doing a website, you know, should have, have the same opportunity to, to preserve that information. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and that, that actually expanded a little bit more at the time, about seven or eight years ago, I started looking and thinking about uh, possibly doing something with metadata in terms of an open standard for the hobby. In other words, and when you're doing databases and, and you're, you're laying out the, the design of the database, you're coming up with the same fields that many other folks have over the years. Um, so having a standardization for that, an open source document, if you will, that kind of defined that, um, I thought would be a good idea for any kind of philatelic data, whether it's a, uh, an image, an article, a book, a website, um, virtually any, everything that we, every type of information we have, digital information, has basically file properties. And in that metadata, if we were to standardize on those things, it would allow for the sharing of that data uh, moving into the future much more seamlessly and more efficiently than having disparate islands of information floating around. Mm-hmm. 
what do you find people are looking for the most when they come to your website? Is it authenticity questions? Is it value questions? Is it just pure curiosity? Uh, what, you know, if you had to, or is it all of the above? If you had to generalize, what do you think that that uh, most people who Google a stamp, for example, you know, they, if they inherit Grandpa Stamp Collection, they Google, you know, two cent Franklin or one cent, you know, um, w- what are they looking for, and, and what are you trying to provide them? Well, the the standard identification, and then followed quickly by value. Of course, a lot of folks are interested in values. I tend to shy away from the value aspect of the hobby, and would rather promote the the things that I feel we can guarantee, um, which is you know um, you know history and ed- educational things, uh, the camaraderie, things like that. These these are you know as a versus the treasure hunting aspect of it. Mm. That's always a, a an element in our hobby, and and certainly every everybody uh, always enjoys making a good finds along the lines, but. You know, I, I if I were to recommend someone get into you know collecting art, I wouldn't say, well, you know, join that hobby because one day you may find a Rembrandt in somebody's attic. You know, it would be much more. No, enjoy it for the intrinsic value of of the art, and and you'll never go wrong that way. Yeah, that's a that's a great mission statement. But talking about the the metadata and the and compiling the, the database that you were talking about that that's that's an enormous task do you have any help with that or is it is it just yourself working on well, this um seven or eight years ago i put together a white paper on on what i my vision for that might be, look like as a start, starting point something that could be put on the wall and with bill's help at the time he was um better connected in into the hobby itself and um, we tried to solicit some some interest in it. I didn't think it would be successful as a grassroots effort. Mm. It really needed to some of the you know some of the 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 major movers and shakers in the hobby to get behind that kind of initiative. So I put together some databases that were built on that, demonstrating how the different types of philatelic data could be melded into these tables and how the indexing would work on that. I also joined the uh, Philatelic Librarians Roundtable. Um, it's, a, it's a Google group, mostly because the, the philatelic libraries um, were the farthest along in sharing uh, uh, through their databases um, the different, the different uh, 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 pieces of information from the different libraries. And so I was trying to get some feedback from, from them and get closer to what they had done with, with the global index that they had. And um, after, after a couple, after about a year or two, um, I wasn't really able, we weren't getting much traction. So that, that effort got shelved. Although interestingly, in the last couple months and with the advent of COVID over the last year, um, and the emphasis that that's and attention that's brought to digital philately, I think that um, there's there's some new interest in that, and I'm talking with some folks now on perhaps reigniting that effort. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be a, a <clears throat> tremendous, tremendously large database, if you will, and, well, and you very very complex. Start, you don't necessarily have to have a single database. You yeah. if it, it's it's all about how you structure your your fields and 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 so that it's it supports uh, the transfer or merging of those different tables. Mm-hmm. So if you have a, a an auction company, uh, obviously they're not going to you know give away the farm, but they have some parts of their data that they'd like to share. You have the certification companies. You have eBay. You have different different entities out there that, that have all these different databases. So, you know, when we go to build a new database and I build new databases, you know, every, every few weeks, I'm constantly revisiting, you know, how is it I break this data down? You know, to me, all of our data could be pushed into a warehouse in one gigantic pile. Um, and the more data we have, the better. But the key is being able to sort and filter through that data and extract the information that, that you're looking for efficiently. Mm-hmm. So um, people can still have multiple databases across the globe. 
the key is if I'm storing currency one way in a database and 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 the Royal in England or or a different organization in Europe or in Asia is storing that currency in a different way, then we're gonna have a hard time ever putting yeah. our are pushing our data together. So so the key here is to kind of define those those fields and those data types in in database world to make that compatible without there being a lot of, uh, if you paint yourself in a corner when you design some of these databases, uh, you'll stand little chance of ever really being able to efficiently merge it. it you, you end up having to do what I call strong arming it, where, where you're really having to do a much more manual process or go through translation layers that, that get very awkward and very costly in terms of database efficiency. Yeah. You'd mentioned earlier that you that you like to shy away from pricing, but a, a, a database this large would would definitely need to include pricing. So, given condition and centering and and everything like that, how would you how would you tackle something that large uh, if you're if you're doing almost like a, a large prices realized for every stamp ever? Yeah, the, what I've done on my site currently is. I, I don't assign any values for virtually anything, but instead what I do is I just use an eBay search string for sold values. Mm-hmm. And that allows folks to, you know, for any particular uh, stamp to be able to click on a link, it'll take them to the eBay sold values, um, and they can, they can then determine, you know, given the, the close tie-in with condition and things like that on these stamps, it's just very difficult to get your head wrapped around. Um, you know, I've had this debate a number of times over the years with different folks about, you know, whether it's even possible to come up with a, a decent uh, valuation of, of a stamp unless you factor in the conditions and most recent. And, of course, you publish something in a hard copy. It's virtually, you know, out of date the moment it hits the publisher. Um, because new sales have occurred. So um, I think the best you can do is help folks right now, um, you know, is point them to uh, prices realized uh, that exist online and Mm -hmm. let them, you know, sort through the condition. And and, uh, I also, on my site, I do, I have support in a lot of my databases for comparing. So you can highlight as you, um, like, in the PSE certification database, you can highlight certifications that are of interest to you, and then by check by selecting them, say compare, and it will then redraw the screen and show you those certifications, the stamps side by side for that kind of comparison. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to mention that too. That you have all of PSE's uh, population report on your website as well. That that. Uh is that something you're working with them on on keeping live, or are you that, pulling that, that information? Yeah, that's a, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a real-time reach into their right. database, but uh, we do it in batches, and we, up, we update that um, usually four times a year, uh, and, and, and so that the data stays uh, relatively fresh. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of the information that you're providing to people, um, uh, you know, digitizing books is is fantastic and, and census reports and things like this are great. But um, I, I also feel like there are certain aspects of the hobby that will will probably always remain physical, whether it's an overprint transparency or a plating diagram that's just easier to have a, a big printout of than on a screen. So do, do you see the, the physical media uh, continuing to uh, uh, you know, maintain its role in the hobby, or, or do you? Th- I mean, are there aspects of the hobby that you think uh, must remain solely uh, physical moving forward that can't be digitized per se? I think physical uh, aspects will always have a place. Um, the dig- one of the things that frustrates me uh, for and, and for our hobby is the the use of older metrics for understanding the health of our hobby. You know, inevitably when I run into somebody who says, well, the hobby's in decline, and when I ask them, you know, when I query them and say, why do you feel that way? I get a lot of uh, justification based on, well, 
memberships have dropped in this organization or the number of brick and mortars have declined, stamp show attendance has declined. Well, that's that. those were accurate metrics to use in the 80s. But after after the inter, after the internet was a huge paradigm shift for everybody to to in the way that we get our information and folks you know they they when I query the folks that are pessimistic about the future of the hobby they they rely on those older metrics and I and I say well how how do you count account for the digital aspects of our hobby how are you factoring that in. And you know, the truth is I'm relatively intimate with the digital parts of our hobby, and I don't have a good way to get my head wrapped around just how big of you know percentage of our hobby right now is digital. You know, we could we'd probably spend uh, you know 20 minutes discussing that and debating that what that is. Um, but you know, I, I also am a, a moderator at a, one of the larger stamp forums online, and we, we average throughout the year. Um, between five and eight new new members signing up per day, and oh, wow. you know that that doesn't you know now a lot of those are folks that have inherited stamps or mm-hmm. come into them, and you know they're not necessarily hobbyists. They're people joining and asking questions um, about what that what's in their in the material they have, and you know to me that's low hanging fruit for our hobby. Those are the folks that we really need. Most of them, I just to put a demographic on it, I would say are 45 to 55, somewhere in that range there. Um, they've gotten material through the family and then they're revisiting. Or they're folks a lot like myself and many others who were engaged in the hobby at a younger age and are now coming back in. So these are the folks that I think, and you know, they're at if you're if they're 45 to 55, you know we've all lived with the internet for 25 or 35 years now, so um, they're used to turning to this medium for to you know get some of the basic information and having you know being able to identify a stamp, for example, by posting you know scanning an image or or putting your you know joining a forum and having good feedback in 10 minutes, you know. Is, is a tremendous uh, value for for folks who are used to getting their information this way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense that people are counting uh, a physical decline, but they're not taking into account the, the, the digital increase in, in members and everything. And we're, we're, we've been, I think, discussing a lot about people who are kind of solo collectors or people who don't feel like they need to belong to any sort of organization. I know as sellers ourselves, I, I think only about anywhere from five to ten percent of our customers are are members of any sort of organization, um, because we've we've looked into the emails that we've sent with people, and and the, ma- the majority of people who are members of organizations at least use their their member number. They say, I'm an APS member. This is my member number. This is, you know, I'm a, a member of this organization. This is my member number. And the majority of our, our customers just don't operate in that, in that way. They don't feel like they need to. So yeah, there's a, there's a large amount of collectors out there that aren't really accounted for. That, uh, uh, I agree. And, and I would say one other attribute of, of the digital parts of our hobby is it's for me the hobby has always been a little bit of a solo kind of of hobby only because of the logistics of being able to take what I've done the work I've done and be able to show it to other folks mm. you know carting a big heavy album you know to a stamp club or something is 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 you know a little bit arduous you know I I also uh, collect and restored Studebaker cars and drove exclusively Studebaker cars for many years. And that's a hobby that was much more um, visible, if you will. It it was easy to get in the car and go to a car show and show your car off and and interface with other hobbyists and, you know, or just driving, go getting an ice cream cone. You have your your hobby out on your sleeve, so to speak. And stamp collecting has always been much more of a personal thing. Um, from, from difficult to take your stamp album with you to go get an ice cream cone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you're not exhibiting, I think. 
definitely frowned upon. Yeah, and if you're not if not exhibiting, it, it, there's there's not much of a a medium for you to just show people right. what you've got. But when in, but in the digital world, it's very possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's relatively easy to to scan your work and and get it published online in one format or another. Posting pictures on a forum, you know, finding a a, a site that's willing to um, you know, put your exhibit up. Um, these these are all things that uh, are very very much within reach now. Mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, oh, I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh, I, was you just, I was just going to say I think it's NGC for for coin I, for for coin grading that that has a a website where you can post all your certified coins and almost kind of compete digitally with other people uh, in in collecting coins and it's a. It, you can click on someone uh, if they're willing to post their their coins on there. You can click on someone's collection and see their entire collection online, and those are all graded coins. And, and it, it's there's nothing really for stamps, and I don't know because albums become so vast and then stamp collections become so large. I don't really know if there's a if that opportunity for stamps would ever even make sense. But but uh, yeah, digitally it's it's becoming easier. And, and I really embrace the, the community project uh, paradigm for um, being able to tackle very large projects. Uh, I'm constantly approached by folks who have spreadsheets of information, things they've worked on for years, gathering data, whether auxiliary marks in postal history or a census for a control perfins, it doesn't really matter. They've, they've just compiled a lot of information and I want to f- help facilitate sharing that kind of information. And that's the way I've, I view my site as, as, as I'm a facilitator. I don't want, one of the downsides of many of the forums today is that the forum information is owned by somebody. Everybody's contributing and you're building this large knowledge base on the forum. But where does that knowledge go? Where does that knowledge base, who owns it? What happens to it if, if the site goes dark? And so I, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, I want to provide a way for folks to contribute rather than keeping a spreadsheet on their desktop and being an island of information, to share that and also to do a type of crowdsourcing, if you will, where, where, where on these larger projects, multiple people can participate, all working off the same body of information. And I, but I still wanted to give them the ability to always be, it's their data. They're the ones that are contributing all this time and effort and investment in, in populating these databases. So a, any of the folks that are contributors to the, to the projects have the ability at any time to export the entire da- database back to their machine in spreadsheet format if they want to work on their own local copy. Um, but, you know, when I first got involved, uh, you know, there was, you know, certain auxiliary marks and things, and somebody had started a spreadsheet, it gets distributed, they were free with distributing it to other collectors, and then everybody added their own and modified their own, and you had a tremendous spaghetti of, of these, these pieces of information that had grown apart, disparate from each other, um, because, and then you had to face with this monumental task of trying to remerge it back together. And um, that, that, so that's why I like the, uh, the idea of having a community, online community project where contributors can upload their images, whether it's a plating effort, whether it's a, a census for registered covers, what have you. They can add it. You can, you can add new folks, um, you know, trusted people. It's a secure thing. They can log in. They can add to the database themselves and... Uh, you know, it's a great way to, to vet information, too, is to, to put it all in a big pile like that and let the other folks, you know, analyze and take a look at it. A lot of people I talk to, and, and particularly non-collectors, I would say, um, ask me why there's not an app where you can just point it at a picture, uh, point it at a stamp, and then it tells you exactly what it is and what year and what country. And and I feel like for a lot of people, that's sort of the white whale of of the technological side of this hobby. What do you see? Is there a, an end goal to your work? Is there an end point? If you had unlimited manpower and and bandwidth and processing power, is there a is there a dream you have that you think would be the culmination 
of, uh, of the integration of technology into philately? Well, that killer app you're describing is, you know, there are a few examples of that out there now, but they all suffer from the same, you know, you can do a pretty, you know, technology has a lot of answers um, for much of this. And, but it doesn't have an answer for the deltas between devices in terms of colors, uh, the ambient lighting that is going to impact the way we're perceiving colors. It doesn't have a solution for, you know, detecting a watermark from a scan, um, you know, or, you know, small natural inclusion that may be a factor. And of course, even with just, if you just looked at it from an ID or a recognition standpoint, you know, a mint stamp is one thing, and even a lightly canceled stamp is, is, is going to be highly accurate. But, you know, when you come to a heavy cancel or you come to a black and white stamp that's got a black cancel on it, you're, you're going to trip that, that algorithm up pretty, pretty severely. So um, it's always good. I, you know, I don't have any technology solutions or, or innovations that I'm aware of. That, that you know, right now address that, and, and color is a is a great one. I I'm always frustrated by by the fact that for for decades color has been an identifier. Mm. You know, color is a human perception. It, if it, it's as if I cooked a pot of chili and I gave it to 25 people and I asked them for their you know what does it taste like? How hot is that chili? You know, everybody is slightly different. It's so subjective. And, you know, for you, it's a, it's a sensory perception. And, you know, what we're seeing are light waves bouncing off the surface of a stamp. So ambient light obviously has a huge impact on that. And this is an area where technology has only added layers of confusion. If the three of us were in a room and we had a stamp in hand, we were under the same ambient light. Um, we, we may be able to come up with a consensus and we can certainly, you know, differentiate between red and green. Um, the subtle colors, we may have differences between each of us. Ladies tend to be better color perceivers than men. They have more cones in their eyes than what men do. So, um, you know, so there's, there's some difference in individual differences, but we've, we've kind of standardized, at least on the ambient light and, and those factors. But when we add in technology, and the fact that you've got a scanner and firmware and a scanner that's, you know, already as soon as it's the CCD and the scanner has picked up the colors on the stamp, you're already filtered through some somebody's algorithm on what the computer now thinks the stamp color is. And when you go to save the file, now you've got more compression and, and they're averaging pixels. You're getting data loss there from the original image file. So, it, you know, we constantly uh, have a lot of folks posting images saying, you know, is this ultramarine? And, you know, we, it, it's, a, it's a conversation we have repeatedly virtually every week with folks on trying to get them to move away from using color as identifier. And, of course, the other difficulty in our hobby is the nomenclature. What one person calls red, another calls Carmen, and there's no standardization on that either. So um, colors are, are, I think, one of the most challenging, uh, you know, what, what do we really want to get to when we talk about stamp color? Well, what we really wanted to understand is were there different batches of ink when these things were printed? And how much one differs from another, from one production run to another, and where different inks used. I think one day technology will solve that, and I don't think it'll have anything to do with visual. I think it will do, be a molecular analysis of the ink itself on the stamp. And I think when we get to that point, you know, obviously it'll have to be non-destructive. When we get to that point, some of these stamps that we have uh, and the colors that we thought we had will be turned on its ear when we get down to the to the molecular level of the, of the inks that were actually being used. There was a, a YPLF member that I met in Omaha, Nebraska. It was Ian Hunter. It, he's developing the... No, so it might not have been Ian. Who I, I, I remember, I mean, he was trying to develop something that would... That would detect color. Exactly, in, in yeah. real time. But but you must look with interest at a lot of the um, uh, the, the chemical analyses then of, of inks that have really been one of the most 
important emerging fields of the hobby, I would say. It's really, I mean, even when you look at the the China clay paper and the blue papers and everything, um, so much of the research that's been done just in the last couple of years has turned decades of conventional wisdom on its head. Yes, yes. And, you know, uh, colors are just simply ephemeral. There's just not no getting away from it. And, you know, again, going back to my other hobby, the car hobby, it's the same thing. We're constantly trying to, you know, if you're going to spend $10,000 on a paint job for your car, you want to, and you want to go back to original color, that's of high interest is what color was this car actually, you know, 50 years ago or five years ago. And, you know, you can try to match it inside of a door jam. But the truth is, you know, as soon as the stamp's printed within a few years, that color's changing. And even the color guides that are sold. And, you know, you say, why don't we have more color reference books and manuals? Well, there's a good reason because they have a shelf life. So even if you go with a color standard like Pantone, um, one of the industry color industry, uh, you know, giants, they'll tell you, no, you need to replace your color guides every like two years Hmm. because they're printed on paper. You can even get plastic ones and coated metal ones, which have a little bit more shelf life. But those those changes are taking place, you know, immediately um, as soon as it's printed. So over time, you have these uh, changes going on in in the, in the inks themselves. We've all seen the, the uh, orange inks that have that have sulfurized, and and you know that's that's a that's a good example. And at some point, I, I hope we revisit. You know, a lot of folks will pull out the hydrogen peroxide and and freshen that stamp up, you know, hydrogen peroxide is a bleaching agent. And, you know, how many, how many times can we dip a stamp in hydrogen peroxide before we're making significant changes to it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in antique world, patina is, is, is embraced. Isn't that just a stamp patina? And shouldn't we just embrace that and, and accept it for what it is and not be altering that, that stamp um, because we think it looks good to our eye? Um, so, so that's, you know, those are some of the things that we, uh, these are topics that we deal with very often online. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many Gibbons or U.S. color guides I've pulled out and compared and the, and the colors even on the color guides are completely different. You know, it's, it's, it's uh it's difficult. It's it's definitely a difficult topic to tackle. Well, I, I wish catalog publishers and others had never taken us down that road to identify by color. And you know, a lot of folks, especially inexperienced folks, are just entering the hobby. They get excited when they see a high catalog value. Uh, sometimes those are related to color. Many times they are. And you know, probably once a week or so. You know, we're having to talk someone, you know, down away from away from the cliff of, you know, I've, ident- I've identified I have this rarity, you know, based on the, it's this is pigeon blood, you know. Oh no, <laughs> we're first of all, we're not analyzing your stamp; we're analyzing an image. You know, it reminds me a little bit of a uh, of you know uh, having a uh, an old TV set and seeing uh, you know a new HD commercial. And they're going to show you a simulated screen, and you know what are you looking at? <laughs> You're looking at your your TV set. So how good is your monitor? How good is your is your video uh, IC and your computer? How good is the software that's running everything? You know, all those things impact, and that's why I say in in this case, technology is unfortunately added more confusion to an already challenging subject. My background is in geology, and in the world of the sciences, there's this ongoing raging debate between open source and a lot of the more prestigious journals like Nature and Science that are always behind a, a hefty paywall. Um, and yet these are the journals that, that uh, are, are cited the most and are, uh, you know, again, it's sort of a catch-22. The, the more prominent the journal you want your work to appear in, the, the less people are going to be able to read it because of, because of this paywall versus the uh, upstart journals that are open access and, and free. Um, what is your take on this in the hobby? I, and you're, you're uh, I would, I would assume a, a proponent of the open access model seeing as what you provide to people for free, but what's your take on, on that debate as it applies to this hobby? 
Well, I I feel strongly there's always a place for paid access to information. I think I think our hobby unfortunately has a legacy two two legacies that we're burdened with. One is we're slow adopters of of, of change and new things like like the digital aspects of it. And and the other is that our hobby has traditionally charged for access to information. And that you know that that wasn't unique to our hobby. It was uh, it happened in a lot of places. And walls were built around access. You had to be a member, or you had to subscribe. And you know that's that's largely been you know uh, had a significant change where and our expectations for access to information has changed. So I don't, but I don't see that. I would never advocate. I think there always will be. Uh, a room for charging for, you know, information. And it's a question of, if I was a catalog publisher, for example, I would be looking at giving away basic information and then charging for a subscription model or some other way to say, if you want enhanced filtering or searching capabilities or if you want more detailed information, because and, I, and the reason I believe that is website traffic is currency. And you have to figure out how to get people. Yeah, there's two things that you want on your website. You want a lot of visitors, and then you want to be able to retain them. And, and for the longer you have them on your site, if I was a catalog publisher, I would want to attract them, and I would attract them with the basic information, um, basic lookup information would be freely available. And, but then I would try to hold them there and interest them in more advanced features, uh, more powerful search tools, um, better filtering capabilities, and other, and look for other ways to do profit centers, and including much more advanced information. Um, and I think that I think that's the the way folks need to think about it because if you don't, the fact is that information is already competitively being published out there. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to compete. And I deal with um, I, I do La Posta's website, and I've worked closely with with uh, with La Posta to get their site out. They were completely purely hard copy and have been around for 50 plus years. And I've, I've tried to help them transition into the digital world. And we followed that model of, look, you've got to get content out there. Make, you know, you want, ultimately what's good for them is that interest in postal, U.S. postal history grows. And how do you attract new, new people to that aspect of our hobby? And, you know, you can't do it by having a wall around all your information and not tipping your hand, uh, not, you know, you, you have to entice folks and show them how interesting and, and the great things that, um, that you can learn from postal history. So that's, um, so that's why, you know, I worked with them and they said, you know, what about all our back issues? I said, well, do you want to get them digitized? And they said, yes. So my wife and I sat down, we digitized 50 years of La Posta and we got them published online. We've added a searchable index to it. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, they, we can see, I mean, on my site, um, over a million and a half page views per year now. And that was, you know, you're talking about a personal site that was started six or seven years ago. Um, so, you know, I don't, and then when I look at um, the forum activity that, that, I, that I participate in and I see four or five new users averaging per day, to me, this is not the sign of a hobby in decline or in poor health at all. Um, I, I see a lot of growth and a lot of interest. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a sign of active new members coming in and trying to find as much information as they can before you know they they need to become specialists or or become interested they're they're in a in a specific field they're almost looking for what they want or what they find most interesting in the hobby if you will yeah and there's still you know a long long way to go and and you know 
segueing back to the the idea of using metadata, this video, you know, has and, and the videos you guys have done have great content in them. And it's relatively straightforward to assign each video a, a title and a description, the participants and things like, you know, the metadata for that is pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But where's the next step in the technology for that? And this technology exists right now, but it's very, very expensive. Technology to run one of these videos through an analyzer that extracts out both the visual and audio information and gets it into a database, mm. right? So, so that it becomes searchable by the content that's actually in the video. And this technology now exists, but you basically rent it from the companies that own it. And they, they, it's, a, it's a subscription model and it's, it's very, very costly. Yeah. So, I but it will follow the evolution. And here I would say in the next five to eight years, we'll see that type of capability becoming, you know, much more within reach for uh, organizations and companies to be able to harvest that information. And again, that's the value of being able to, you, get, you have disparate types of medium, whether it's a, a hyperlink or whether it's an article or whether it's a video or a sound clip, you know, uh, imagine if I think NPR had a had a history project going where they set up sound booths around the country and gathered people's historical uh, input, um, mm -hmm. you know, World War II veterans and, and, then you, and they just sat there and, and would record some of their memories. And that's the kind of thing that I think when I think of the brain drain that our hobby goes through when we lose some of the tremendous assets, folks that have spent their lifetime learning uh, about our hobby and we, and they have it locked in between their ears and we need to figure out ways to get it out of their heads and get it out in front of other folks. Yeah. When we first started this, I think we were three episodes in and, and I became curious of what exactly you just talked about. So I went to look up to see if there was something that could pull the audio and create a transcript of our conversations so that we could make them searchable and, and readable for people who either didn't have time to listen to an hour but wanted to know what we were talking about um and it and it was it was um i think it was something like 60 or 75 dollars per hour of video that you wanted the transcripts pulled from it was just outrageously expensive and, and i immediately scrapped the idea because it's we're just uh <laughs> finding this ourselves in the next so. five to eight years we can do it michael we can <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, the verbal part is relatively – there's no magic in that, in that uh, technology. Mm -hmm. the, the magic comes with the visual parts. You know, if we had a whiteboard up and we were whiteboarding things or showing a stamp, um, sharing our screens or running through a presentation where you've got that mix of audio and visual. And, you know, how, how is it you pull that visual part into, into that transcript? And my last question, and then then I'll turn it back over to you, Michael. But the, in, you, you talk about um, you know if somebody has their spreadsheet, their database where they log auxiliary markings or whatever, or or even just um, uh, you know keeping tabs on on their collections. What can people do to contribute to your website? What are you looking for for people uh, to 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 send you? You know what what can they do to advance your mission? Is it digitizing old books and periodicals? Is it um, again, what, what can somebody listening to this uh, go to you with that, that you feel would advance your cause? I, I'm open to virtually any type of uh, information they're, they're looking to share, whether it's just a personal collection and they'd like to make an exhibit out of it or just share uh, the pages they've done. Um, I'm always looking for educational things. I, I've put together a, a number of different things, some of it targeted at younger folks um, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, capture them, whether it's music videos or, or games, online games. Um, I did a periodic table that uh, has, a, has a stamp for each element, uh, a tree of life. So things that, that teachers may be able to use or whether it's how-to videos to how to decoupage uh, stamps onto a lampshade, you know, they're, they're just any, anything at all that they would like to share. Um, and they may not have the uh, 
the, the understanding, the, the technology, they may not be geeky like me and understand how they can get that uh, into a, into the digital world. I view myself as a facilitator to be able to help them with that. But that's that's uh, fantastic. Glad to hear that that you're that you're accepting any and all contributions. I mean, this has been an outrageous task that you, that you've put on. You had talked about. Uh, people putting together 2000 hour books and the 2000 hour websites. I'm almost afraid to ask you how many hours have gone into building this, this website. Well, it, right now it's, I average about 1500 hours a year on it for the last seven years, but keep in mind, this is, this is my bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> being, being a dialysis patient, you know, I spend 20 hours a, a week uh, chained to a, you know, being kept alive by a machine. So uh, I could sit there and watch the boob tube for 20 hours, or I could bring my laptop and get something productive done. So, you know, for me, it's been a welcome distraction, and and it's you know it's uh, you know one of the things that dialysis patients also face is um, it's difficult to travel. It it can be done, but there's a lot of logistics involved. So um, you know this this allows me to um, you know really stay engaged in the hobby, and you know. I've also just in the last uh, couple, you know, the, the explosion of Zoom in mm. or video conferencing in, in our hobby, you know, given the, the events of the last year has, has been tremendous. And uh, my local club was an early adopter of, of Zoom meetings. And we have always had an active club here in the mountains of Western North Carolina and going back through the, through the 30s. And so we looked at, we were doing one of the popular parts was our club auctions. And so we were struggling with how was it we want to do online club auctions via Zoom. And uh, we wanted this to, you know, as opposed to a mail order type auction or just posting some, you know, on a web page and people bid, we wanted to have that human element of the, of, and the camaraderie that we have and, and the, the joking around and, and, and the good times that we had in the face-to-face type club auctions. So I developed um, some databases where folks, and you know, logistically you can, that can you know, be quite a time suck. You've got to email people pictures of your lots and then they've got to be posted and you want to give people the ability to preview. So rather than jump through those hoops, I developed a database and people just upload their images with their descriptions, their starting price, and, and a, little, a couple other. It's a very simple form. It takes a minute or two to fill out. Um, you can upload up to a number, a number of images and it automatically builds the auction catalog in real time as soon as you hit save. And then when we go on our meeting days that we have the auctions, I share a screen on Zoom I, I open another page that I've developed out of the auction catalog, and we go through, it gives the lot number, the description, shows the image of the lot, and we, we do our face-to-face auction on that. Well, that proved to be so popular, um, just by word of mouth, I'm, I'm now got like nine different clubs, <laughs> uh, smaller clubs, who have all asked me for the same functionality. And, mm-hmm. and you know, just today I was working on one before this call. So, and some of these are international clubs and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm hosting it, you know, at no charge and the code, I don't charge anyone for it. It's just a service, um, you know, but this is a, this is the kind of thing where people, I'm always looking at technology as a as a potential uh, solution to to, and that's what really throws my light switch the most is being able to apply technology and come up with a solution where someone says, "Wow, this is great. This is saving us time. This is really helping us share information." That's that's my that's my bucket list right there. Wow, well, that's that's been fantastic, Don. The, the, I'm afraid to ask my, my final question because it sounds like you've got your hands full, which was just going to be what's what's next? What was your, other than what you've already talked about, did you have anything that you were working on for this Stamp Smarter website that that you had, that you were looking forward to? I, um, well, any, all, I have a number of new projects in the works and I am looking forward to this uh, potential metadata project that, you know, the the product of that project will be a document, 
but I still think that has you know stands a significant chance at changing our hobby in a very positive way if we can get it out there and and get buy-in. You know, on any of those type of projects, and I learned this about IT years ago, uh, doing different IT projects in companies and things like that, is getting the buy-in is the most important thing. The technology, the, the gee whiz part of the technology and the light bulbs, the innovations, all that is, you know, that, that's great, but that's, those are short-lived. What you have, and you know, I could roll out the slickest program or the slickest widget in the world. And if I haven't gotten buy-in from the the folks who are going to use it, then I'm really got an uphill battle. So, you know, for something like this, this open source document um, specification for database fields, the, the key is going to be, you know, going around and doing the sales job with this, as opposed to the nuts and bolts of, of hammering out the, the the fields and the nomenclature and those kinds of things. That's that's pretty straightforward. The 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 big effort is is getting the buy-in. That's fantastic. That sounds like it's going to be incredibly influential in the hobby when it when it does come out uh, eventually. And and we're definitely looking forward to that. Thank you so much for for so talking I, I to like us. I like that one oh, yeah, go, thing. Go, yeah, go ahead. Here's a here's an example where where I think an improvement could be made. Exhibiting, mm. okay. We have well-defined exhibiting criteria for physical exhibits and stamp shows. You know, there's frame sizes, there's there's standards, there's guidelines, but we have virtually nothing for digital exhibiting. Mm. And I've been called on quite a few times over the last two three years to say. Well, you know, I like the way that, you know, you guys, you know, on your site, you're, you're, you're showing, you're displaying these slideshows and things like that. You know, can, can we use that? Can we do? So I think there's, there's room for improvement in our hobby to standardize on exhibiting. You know, some people use PDFs and, and you know, other, mm-hmm. other shows will use something different. We really could stand the standardization in this area for, you know, file types for the code that, that we use, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel, which is what I see going on now. On all these different sites, everybody is burning time doing the same thing that everybody else has already done. Yeah. And and they're they're customizing a little bit to themselves, but so I've worked on putting together uh, some download uh, zip files that and some simple instructions on what I feel is the most generic and simplest way to do an online exhibit. And, um, you know, for me, if so, if you were to give me, uh, uh, let's say, a 25-page exhibit, I could have that implemented in, in less than 20 minutes. Wow. Um, so these these are the kinds of things that I'm, I look forward to in terms of, uh, you know, moving, seeing our hobby move to the next next generation. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely opportunity there uh, for and exhibiting I mean, to be improved. You know, I still do have some resistance in the hobby where folks, you know, oh, well, you know, the, the Internet and email is, is killed off the postal system. And I don't see it like that at all. To me, the Internet is the next generation postal system. You know, it, it, it's an it's a evolutionary step. If we look back at, you know, the earliest postal systems where messengers were running you know, verbally between <laughs> between towns to to deliver uh, communications between humans. Um, you know, look at all the technology that has advanced over the years in postal systems. Uh, you know, the Pony Express was retired by the by the railroads, and then RPOs were retired by airmen. Um, you know, we, we've always seen whether it's the postal systems, whether it's our hobby we're always like 15 or 20 years behind the curve on this stuff. And I'd love for us to get out from behind that curve. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a, a hot topic that's always discussed and, and I, and how philately will age with the technology is, is a, it, it'll be incredibly interesting to see how that progresses and hope that it does the best, but thank you so much for doing, doing the best you can to, to aid with that, uh, 
endeavor. Well, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity and the fact that the hobby is, uh, you know, it's, it's just offered me a tremendous value here, uh, in particularly in the last decade, uh, in, in giving me this this something to latch on to, stay engaged, and uh, not, you know, not increase the burden on my poor family. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, thank you so much, Don, for, for meeting with really us, taking the time this. out. Yeah, this has been um, very informative, uh, uh, I'll say. That's it's been uh, it's been eye opening in a way. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate yeah. it very much. Of Absolutely. course, of course. Thank you so much, and, and best of luck, and, and keep us posted on those uh, those new developments. Will do. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. I really enjoyed that, Michael. I thought that was a, a really interesting chat. And uh, again, you don't think that you know when you visit these websites or you know you go on these forums, there are there are people behind uh, behind the operations, and it's interesting to hear some firsthand uh, knowledge about what goes into to building these websites. Yeah, it was interesting to hear that they get 1.5 million hits a year. Unique, that's, that's fascinating. That's that's crazy, and that this forum that he's a moderator of is getting three to five new members a day and and he did you know preface that with right, they're not that all going to log in every day but that's still people coming they're not all collectors they're right you, yeah but, but there's people out there who who want information and yeah. who uh are are you know looking for then he's filling a, an essential uh need so i i, I think yeah. it's fantastic and I, I really enjoyed talking to him yeah it's a great it's a great question to be asked at what point do we stop providing information for free? Because the people providing information need some sort of monetary gain. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to provide it's, this information. It's, it's, it's a balancing act, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I, I think there's room for a lot of different voices and a lot of different philosophies to make mm-hmm. themselves known in the hobby. And and ultimately, you know, we, I think the hobby is stronger for having all these uh, the, yeah. people working towards a common goal. Yeah, at the end of the day, everybody's just trying to improve the hobby. Well, Michael, I really enjoyed this this episode. Can I say one last thing before we wrap this up? Yeah, absolutely. Something I posted on Twitter that you actually retweeted, so you know where I'm going with this. Um, you invited me to a trivia night with your friends on Friday. That's true. And uh, it is true. And I enjoyed myself very much. And it got me thinking, could we apply this same concept to Flatley? We could. We could. So, thank you for... Uh, <laughs> Affirming me. Um, yeah. So I I was thinking that maybe in the next couple of weeks after this episode airs and everyone's mm-hmm. had a chance to listen to it, and I'll tweet about it a couple more times because that's mm-hmm. where people go for information is my right, Twitter right. feed. Um, I was thinking maybe we could do a, a philatelic trivia uh, yeah. with, with some cool prizes, um, you know, a couple rounds of, uh, you know, different categories. Not even, you know, cause a couple of people said I'm, I'm worried that I, I won't do well because I don't know so much about stamps. But I don't want to mm-hmm. make it just about, like, knowing stamps. I think it yeah. could be... Uh, sort of cultural as well and things sort of uh, tangentially related to the post. So if you're on board and uh, I believe, I believe Kaylee, your wife said she might be on board to help with scoring and everything. Yeah. Uh, maybe the three of us could put together a, a live philatelic trivia and, uh, and give away some cool prizes and get to know people better. You know, what would be fantastic is if the entire thing was hosted by Claire, our producer, and then we just asked the questions and I don't know what her, we should let Claire do that, though. We should we should let Claire host it, and Absolutely. then yeah, and then we can be there interacting with people. But that way, people can meet Claire too. They yeah. hear us reference her all the time, and she prevents them from uh, having to put up with us for any longer than is absolutely necessary. Yeah, she cuts these interviews down from She's two hours. Cut this part out as we're talking about her cutting down. <laughs> yeah, she cuts do it that, down Claire. from like two hours to an hour. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, let's bring Claire into it and let's do philatelic trivia. Maybe we can even uh, see if the APS would be on board or something. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fantastic. One of our uh, future guests that we've talked to actually had a um, philatelic trivia. I didn't get to attend it. But Casey Joe White actually hosted a APS stamp chat trivia. Right, that's yeah. right. Um, well, let's um, I, then let's just hop. Yeah, maybe I subconsciously got this idea from that. Yeah, yeah, but we will be talking to Casey Joe White. We are going to be talking to Casey Joe White in yeah. uh, in the next couple if, of weeks. Yeah, in a few weeks. Um, but uh, but yeah, she hosted a trivia. I think it'd be fantastic if if we could host a trivia also. Um, we can just do a poor imitation of her trivia. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. That sounds like I, a lot I'm, of fun. Michael. I'm on well, board with that. Fantastic. Well, uh, as always, uh, thank you to everyone who listens. We're at flatterlypodcast.com, flatterlypodcast at gmail.com, all the 
podcast platforms. Everywhere. You know where, you know where to find us. You know where to find us. Michael J. Court on Twitter. I'm Charles L. Epting on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is a real fun one, Michael. I'll talk to you next time. Sounds good, Michael. Talk All right. To you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye.